Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And thank you all very much indeed for being so effective in promoting and publicizing the show. A whole lot of you are obviously doing that, and both Susan and I uh, appreciate that enormously. Well, today's show is entitled, If Familiarity Breeds Contempt, How Can Marriage Survive? And uh, sure enough, it, it obviously is a real question, but on one level, I'm sure that many of you are identifying it as a bit of a straw man type of question. If familiarity breeds contempt, but maybe it doesn't always breed contempt, in which case there's no real question. I mean, after all, we all know that every expression or idiom or proverb that means one thing is always matched by another idiom or expression or proverb that means exactly the opposite. Uh, for instance, the squeaking wheel gets the grease, so you go up there to the top floor and make a fuss. But wait, silence is golden. Or, uh, you know, you, you really ought not to judge a book by its cover, right? But wait a second, clothes make the man. Or how about get a lot of people involved because many hands make light work. But on the other hand, too many cooks spoil the broth. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, you're getting a gift, just be happy, enthusiastically accepted. But wait, beware Greeks bearing gifts. Some gifts come with a price that is too high to pay. Better to be safe than sorry. On the other hand, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Or something that uh, they often tell people, you're never too old to learn. But what about you cannot teach an old dog new tricks? Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today, right? The uh, warning against procrastination. Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. But uh, how about don't cross the bridge until you come to it? All right? Or absence makes the heart grow fonder. They, they tell the guy who's going to be parted from his girlfriend or fiance. Uh, but um, then as soon as he's on his way, somebody else reminds him out of sight, out of mind. You know, don't just jump into things. Look before you leap. But wait a moment, he who hesitates is lost. Well, I, you know, I was thinking of all of these, and um, I could not think of an opposite of familiarity breeds contempt. Uh, familiarity breeds respect. <laughs> There's no, there is no such expression. So... Is there an opposite of familiarity breeds contempt? I couldn't think of it. And if, if any of you do, by the way, uh, do help me out and tell it to me. Go to my website at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, just contact us. Use the Contact Us tab and just let me know uh, what the opposite expression is. I simply couldn't think of one. But, uh, but at any rate... Uh, we all know that um, that in relationships, and it's it's true in business relationships as well, 
uh, it's certainly in marriage also, which is that uh, it is possible for respect to give way to disdain, and then for disdain to quickly dissolve into contempt. Uh, Ryder Haggard, the great novelist Ryder Haggard, um, wrote that, and I, I, I'm, I'm quoting it not verbatim because I don't remember the exact words, but it's something like, no man is a hero to his valet. Actually, now that I think of it, that may be actually a verbatim quote. No man is a hero to his valet. In other words, uh, you know, your, your valet sees you uh, when you take off your pants at night and he takes your pants and he presses them and gets them ready for the next morning and your valet comes in to wake you up and sees uh, how you struggle to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah, no man is a hero to his valet. Well, being married is, uh, is an even closer relationship than having a valet. And so what happens there? How does respect not give way to disdain? And how does disdain not lead to contempt? And if it does lead to contempt, it's very difficult to keep that marriage going. And very often in that situation, people uh, keep it going simply out of inertia, you know, because ending a marriage is traumatic and painful and expensive and horrible, so they just continue on, as Thoreau said, living lives of quiet desperation. But uh, question is, obviously there is a familiarity in marriage, right? You've seen husbands and wives who finish each other's sentences, husbands and wives who literally know what the other one is thinking sometimes, of course there's a familiarity there. And that familiarity that is an inevitable and important part of marriage, will it inevitably pull the marriage down? Well, we're going to have to take a closer look at this. Look, I could hardly be more familiar uh, with anything than I am with my knee. Both of my knees come to think of it. Now, I'd be the first to confess that my knees are somewhat knobbly. I would be the first to say that were I to walk around in short pants, very few people would be gazing in absolute astonishment at the beautiful sight of a pair of lappin knees perambulating down the sidewalk. Uh, so I will admit, my knees are nothing much to look at. But I like them. I've, we've been together for a few years now. And we've taken care of each other. And uh, they're good. I like my knees. But uh, contempt for them? I could hardly be more familiar. I really, really am familiar with my knees. I know them front and back. But contempt for my knees? Of course not. Impossible. Because it's part of me. So there right away we have one area in which a marriage is quite different from a business relationship and quite different from my valet. Because my spouse is in a certain sense a part of me. We are one unit. 
And in the same way, I'm very unlikely to have contempt for my knees. I'm, of course, not going to have contempt for my spouse either. But at the same time, at the same time, I, look, I was once a house guest. A number of years ago, I was a house guest of a couple. She could hardly have been a more refined and, um, and gentlewoman, uh, a daughter of a distinguished rabbinic family. And she was just, uh, she was a, just a wonderful woman. How this match ever came to be, I have no idea. I did discover afterwards that her family was not happy with the match and it went ahead. Anyway, she was infatuated with the guy. Well, uh, I saw pictures of him at his wedding and then I know what he looked like when I knew him and he had become huge and corpulent and gross. Um, he had become vulgar and... I think this might have been the first, I, you know, I was, I, was, I was a fairly young guy, I was a single man at the time, and uh, I think it might have been the very first time that I ever saw a husband make no effort to restrain his body from emitting rude noises in the presence of his wife. I think it was the first time I ever saw that. And, um, and I, I, have, I, I had no doubt then that she had developed contempt for him. I think he had reached the point that he was beyond feeling humiliated by not being able to live up to her. And it, of course, did not come as a huge shock when uh, a few years later I heard that they had divorced. Sadly, they had children. It was, it was just a sad story. But... Um, yeah, I understand contempt can be very real. I want to try and explain that in a little bit more detail uh, as we move along in today's show. But uh, as always, the, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. You can make sure you receive Susan's musings every week. You can make sure you receive thought tools every week. By the way, the current thought tools up there, it's about baskets in the uh, five books of Moses. I, it, it's really one of the most fascinating thought tools I've written, and I, I enjoy rereading it so much. It's such an important point. So do go ahead and read. If you haven't seen this thought tools about why a certain specific word for basket is used in one place and one place only in the five books of Moses, and the practical lesson we can learn from that in building successful lives. All of that is on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And also, uh, there is, for listeners of this show, there is a special price for all the paperback books. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven paperback books. Um, one is called The Skeptic and the Rabbi. And uh, I look, the book's fascinating. I happen to be the rabbi in the title. It was written by a woman called Judy Gruen fascinating story of her journey into faith, plus uh, another six paperbacks, and I'll tell you more about them coming right up. But first of all, on with the show in just a moment. Back we go with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and uh, let me tell you about a young man. This was while I was still serving 
my congregation in Los Angeles, California. And uh, Susan and I set up a uh, young man and a young woman, two single people, uh, who were regular uh, members of the congregation. And you know, we, we did that all the time. Uh, we, we would start off with a serious conversation with each party. Uh, we also extracted a commitment from each one uh, to go on a minimum of four dates before making a decision, yes or no, and, uh, and one or two other requirements before we involved ourselves. And uh, in this particular case, we were fairly optimistic. We, um, uh, as I, we'd had good conversations with both of them, and, and it looked very promising. Uh, oddly enough, um, the woman came to talk to us soon after their second date, and she, she came because she wanted to be released from the commitment to go on four dates. And, I, you know, I didn't take really kindly to that because that was the deal. But when she explained what the problem was, uh, I was very sympathetic. What she said to me was, she said, look, um, there's one thing, and she gave reasons for having to do with her background and how she grew up, but she said the one thing she's got zero tolerance on is swearing and obscenity and vulgarities uh, from a guy. And she said, I'm sorry, but um, I, from, from the, the beginning of the first date uh, to the end of the second one, he'd constantly let slip um, things I really didn't want to hear. And this just, and he didn't even comment on them. He didn't apologize. They just came out. I, not only is there no point in me going out with him for another two dates, but it would be painful. It would be pointless and painful. Well, Susan, I immediately said, of course, uh, you are immediately released from that commitment. And I grabbed the phone, spoke to the guy, and asked if he could come over to my office as soon as possible to, um, to speak with me. I asked him how did he think it was going, and he said, well, he really likes her, and he hopes that uh, she feels the same. Uh, but he's you know, looking forward to another two dates, and then they'll, then, then they'll talk about it and see, see where they stand. I said, well, I've got bad news for you, and, and that is this, uh, this is all over. It's finished. Uh, she won't go out with you again. He said, what are you talking about? Uh, you, you said four times. I said, yep. We released her from that obligation. He said, why? What, what's wrong? I said, well, because of the way you behave. And I said, now, I have to tell you um, that what I'm about to say baffles me because you and I have known one another for a little over two years now. We've spent a fair amount of time together. We have studied quite a lot of Bible together. And I have never seen the kind of conduct in you with which she charges you. And uh, I would like to get to the, the bottom of it. He said, well, I can't imagine. What did she say? I said, she said that your speech is unrefined, it's vulgar, it's uh, uh, obscene, and uh, you use uh, swearing. And he, he turned colors a little bit, and he said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. I understand why this would shock you because I don't speak that way around you. He says, as a matter of fact, I pretty much don't speak that way around my friends either anymore. 
Uh, he said, since I've been studying Bible with you, this has really been an area that you made a lot of sense on and I've, I've changed substantially. So I said, so what on earth happens when you're on a date? And he said, well, um, he said, I just think it's really important that she knows me as I am. I don't want her to fall in love or become interested in somebody who isn't me. I want her to know the real me. And then if she's interested, I'll know she's really interested and we can go ahead and talk. But I don't want her to, to become uh, interested in any way in, in something that is just a, a shadow or a reflection of the real me. He said, and, and the real me, I mean, I've got to tell you, although I don't do it so much anymore, deeply embedded me in me is uh, that kind of speech. My whole life I've been talking like that, excepting for the last two or three years. And, well, um, I sat down with him and I said, look, we, we've, got to, we, we've got to really work our way through this. When you get married to somebody, you do not get married with a pledge to always remain the way you've always been. You don't get married with an undertaking never to change. You don't get married with a commitment to never improve yourself. You don't get married with a, uh, uh, with a, de with a determination to be your lowest and your worst. That's not what marriage is. And so... Yes, you don't have to be false, and you shouldn't be false, but that's not the real you. It may have been the real you back then, but one of the very big differences between a cow and a cat and a camel and a kangaroo and a human being, yes, I've, I've used that formulation for a couple of years now, one of the big differences is that animals don't change. Right, A cat will, is, is exactly the same cat it was a year ago. The camel is the same camel it was five years ago. The kangaroo and the cow, same thing. But human beings, we are capable of changing. In circumstances, we can become worse. We can deteriorate. We can become lesser human beings. We can become vulgar. We can become uh, less honest. We can become duplicitous. We can, um, we can become less disciplined. We can become less capable of deferring gratification. We can, all those things are deteriorate. But you know what? We can also improve. We can also become uh, things that, that, we, that are really fantastic improvements. We can build ourselves, demand more of ourselves, grow. And part of what marriage does is it develops a consistency. When you live entirely by yourself, you can tolerate incredible inconsistencies between the way you think and believe and the way you act. And you, you dispense with them as a single person. You say, well, you know, one day I'll improve. Yes, I know I ought to be doing this, but not today. Uh, yes, I fully intend at some point or another to start doing this, but not yet, not, not at the moment. Um, but as soon as you're married and living with somebody else, so crucial is the respect, so important is the respect, that you can no longer allow much of a gap between your beliefs and your actions. Now, when you have children, whatever tiny slack had been left has now evaporated. When you have children, the consistency becomes crucially important. And the cost 
of inconsistency in your relationships with your children becomes far too high to bear. Well, uh, as it turned out, uh, this young man understood exactly what was going on. It was a huge eye-opener for him. He really thought that he was doing the right thing, that he was, he was being responsible and honest in letting what he believed to be his true self come across. But um, he asked her for an opportunity to at least explain. He said, I, I accept you may not ever want to go out with me again, but let me first explain. And he, he, she agreed. She was a, a fine woman. She agreed to sit down with him, and they sat down over coffee. And he said, look, I'm embarrassed, but I, I had the wrong idea. I used to be like this. I thought it would be wrong of me to conceal that part of me from you, and so I just let myself be that way. And... Uh, and I thought, you know, down the road, uh, down the road, if we if we get together and we marry, it'll be one of the things I, I put behind me. But at this point, it would be wrong of me to withhold this information from you. Anyway, she she understood, he understood, and uh, the uh, end of the story was they got married. Um, just before the wedding, and and they they lived happily ever after. Just in case some of you were worried about that, but. Um, but uh, just before the wedding, he came back to uh, talk with me. He made an appointment, and we sat down. And he said, let me just understand something. I, I, I got it. I got what you said, that I had to be on my best when I was with her. Uh, we were on dates, and he said, we, did, we went on our other day. We went on many more than two more dates, and things went great. And as you know, you're going to be officiating at my wedding soon. But... Um, I'm finding it just a little bit stressful to always be on my best behavior. When I'm with my friend, I, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't swear anymore. But every now and then, you know, something slips out and it's no big deal. But it would be with her. So I'm, I'm like really careful with her. And, um, and I, I have extrapolated from that to know that there are probably a whole lot of other things that I try and avoid when I'm with her. There are other good things I try and adhere to and practice when I'm with her. So I congratulated him and I said, you're very fortunate. You have found a woman who is going to share your life with you, who draws from you the very best and is making of you a better person than you were before. How wonderful is that? This is a clear application of, uh, of the words God spoke in the beginning of Genesis when God said, not good for man to be alone, I will make a helpmate for him. And the Hebrew word is opposite him. And the idea there is that she's not always going to be a yes man or a yes woman. She's not always going to just agree with whatever you think or do. Right? She did not agree with the way you spoke. And as a result of her being your helpmate, she opposed you. She was opposite you. But the end result is wonderful. He said, yeah, 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 but fine, I get it. But when, when can I get back to just being myself? And I said to him, uh, the answer you want? He nodded in vigorously, and I said, the answer is never. You can never go back to being that you, because the cost would be your marriage. Most women want to be with a man who's climbing up a ladder. Most women desperately need ambition in their men. 
Yes, economic ambition is part of it, but it's not all of it. The other part of it is moral ambition as well. A man who is drawn to do the right thing, a man who is drawn to seek out goodness and justice, these are things that most women want to be part of. When they hitch their lives to a man, it's usually a man that they can look up to, a man they can respect, a man who's doing the right thing. So from now onwards, I said to him, uh, for the rest of your life, your married life, you, you cannot lie in bed after your wife is getting up. You can never be second one up because it is almost impossible for somebody who's jumping out of bed, ready to start the day, looking at his or her partner, still dozing or pressing the snooze bar half a dozen times without a feeling of revulsion, without a small feeling of disrespect maybe then disdain and ultimately contempt. And so, yes, give thanks to God for bringing you a wife who is demanding more of you than you would ever demand of yourself. Not in any harsh way. She's not your sergeant major. Uh, she's not doing anything like that. But still, how wonderful is this? You get the idea. Does familiarity breed contempt? It can, but let me explain as we wrap up in the next segment. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, as you uh, all but the newest of audience members must surely know by now, rabbidaniellappin.com. Please bear with me. Do not suffer shudders of revulsion every time you hear me mention the, uh, the website, but, um, but because that is... From my point of view, one of the things that we need to get back from you in this exchange of delivering what we hope to be value and usefulness to you, and in return at the same time, making accessible to you the products that we create. And so a big sale, everything, uh, everything in the paperback book range that we have published and produced, available now at uh, just under $10 each, which is terrific. We've got The Skeptic and the Rabbi, which I've told you about. It's, uh, it's really quite terrific. Um, a Young Woman's Journey into Faith from a Jewish, and a west side of Los Angeles, secular Jewish girl to a religious, uh, Bible-believing, and orthodox practicing Jew. Quite a journey. And I was privileged to be just a little part of that. Uh, another book at the same uh, specially reduced price is Hands Off, This May Be Love. A third one is I Only Want to Get Married Once. Uh, and then there's three thought tool books. And then there is a collection of Ask the Rabbis. It's called Dear Rabbi and Susan. You can read about those all on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And surely you are going to find at least something there that can enhance your life. Okay, back with you for the final segment in just a moment. Okay, everybody, thank you for being part of the show. We're back for the final segment of today's show. And I have to tell you about uh, some architectural developments uh, which absolutely astounded me. And that was uh, an open bathroom concept. Um, I, 
I know who the architects are. There was a whole school of them that were pushing this revolutionary new idea that the, the bathroom in the master bedroom was basically not separated. And they spoke glowingly about couples togetherness and there should be no artificial barriers and no separation. And, uh, and essentially what it meant was that there was no privacy at all, even uh, for matters of, uh, of private uh, hygiene and grooming matters. No privacy, and they thought this was a great idea. Now, in all fairness, they're not the only ones who thought it was a great idea because I have had couples consult with me, and one of the questions I ask, and they answer it, is that um, they use the bathroom with the door open and that it's quite okay. They don't mind if their partner wanders in and wanders out. Now, look, as you know, I don't really care whether I sound um, retrogressive or uh, the opposite of progressive. I don't really care if I sound old-fashioned uh, because I am teaching a system of ancient Jewish wisdom uh, which is rather old-fashioned. And I don't mean old-fashioned like from 20 years ago. I don't even mean old-fashioned from 200 years ago. But I'm talking old-fashioned from well over 2,000 years ago. And, and so I have absolutely no hesitation in telling you that uh, contempt that comes from familiarity uh, will come from too much familiarity, not just from familiarity itself. Familiarity in its purest sense is one of those wonderful things in marriage where you sometimes giggle quietly in sheer exhilaration at the knowledge that you know exactly where your spouse is going on a, on, on a particular matter, either with your children or with friends or relatives or family or whatever it is. And you, you chuckle inwardly saying, we've really become familiar. We really know each other. That is true, and it's wonderful. And that doesn't need to produce contempt at all, not even disdain, no diminution of respect. But a familiarity which allows no privacy to each partner, particularly in the physical area, no privacy at all, now there is a huge problem. And so if there are still, in these enlightened days, any people who think that marriage means um, no barriers at all and no privacy, uh, well, think again, because you're hurting your marriage. Um, I'll also tell you something else, which is, um, uh, I'm sure, difficult to hear, but I'm going to tell it to you. And, and that is that um, in Jewish life, in Jewish married life, there is a system which is in place and has been in place for thousands of years that makes sure that the familiarity that comes from excess non-stop togetherness never happens. And what is this? Well, it's a system that, um, when I say it's been practiced for a long time, we have evidence that it was practiced in Masada. If you've been to the Holy Land, if you've been to Israel, you've seen the fortress 
hilltop fortress of Masada, uh, you will have seen uh, a mikveh or a ritual bath there. And you will also find these in uh, Shiloh. Again, we're talking about places that are well over 2,000 years old. Shiloh, well over 2,000, 3,000. And the, what are these for? Well, let me tell you. Here's the system practiced in Judaism, and, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not necessarily promoting it at all, but I, I want you to know about it. And that is that during the wife's menstrual period and for a week after its conclusion, husbands and wives do not, not only don't sleep together, they don't touch one another. There's no physical touch at all. And uh, many people upon learning of this say, oh, I couldn't live without touch. I need this show, this contact that speaks of connection and intimacy and the comfort of physical touch. I can't possibly do without it. Well, uh, here's the beautiful thing. For that period of, you know, a week and a half or whatever it turns out to be, uh, what's really been happening is that the couple is learning to communicate non-physically. They're learning to communicate verbally. They're learning to communicate emotionally. How wonderful is this? Don't forget most husbands do not know how to communicate non-physically. For most husbands, the immediate response to an upset wife is physical. For a husband today to be able to sit down and say, please come and sit with me on, on the couch, come sit with me at the table, let's just talk for a few minutes so I can really understand what's hurting you and what's, what's upsetting you. That is is something that every single month the husband has an opportunity to do because the natural, instinctive, physical response is barred. It's not available. So it's, it's an extraordinary system. And, um, and in addition to that, as you can imagine, when a husband and wife have not been able to touch one another for... 10 days, 12 days, sometimes 13 days. Uh, can you imagine what an incandescent conflagration is ignited on the night they come together again? And that happens every single month. It is truly like a marriage night. It's like a bridal night every single month. And that turns out to be a huge obstacle to familiarity, a bulwark against the danger of over-familiarity. Wonderful thing. I know that that's obviously not practical for everybody, but uh, to extend uh, the idea of no physical contact, not just no actual intimacy, but not even any contact, at least during the time of the wife's period. Maybe that's an idea. Maybe that's something that makes sense for, for many people. Certainly something to think about. It is definitely um, a help. And all of these things, um, remembering that, uh, particularly the husband, and this is, this is more of a pressure on him, 
to, to always make sure that he is coming across as his best, that he's not letting himself go, that he's not sliding down. Uh, and women as well. Uh, to some extent, uh, it, there are aspects of that that can be true for, for women also. It is very difficult for a man to feel over-familiar and disdain for a woman who makes herself look beautiful for him. That's an amazing thing. You know, a guy sees his wife dressing up carefully doing her hair, doing her makeup, um, dressing beautifully, wearing the heels, all terrific. For what? Because she's going out. But when she's with him, she looks, yeah, you know, obviously back to front. If anything, if anything, let her look any old how when she goes out, as long as she looks her very best with her husband, obviously. These are the ways in which we make certain that familiarity never breeds contempt, that familiarity is a positive, wonderful thing, but never that it develops its negative impact. Good things very good things can flow from the natural familiarity of marriage as long as the safety bulwarks are in place and as long as both parties, but particularly the guy, realize the necessity of keeping himself disciplined, focused, and upwardly mobile. Not so much in an economic sense, although that's obviously important also, but in a moral sense, in a sense of personal development, personal behavior, uh, self-discipline, restraint, and so on. All of these things are incredibly helpful and, uh, and uh, bring about uh, a thrill and an exhilaration in marriage as much in the 20th year as in the second year, as much as in the 30th year as in the third month. All of these things can flow naturally with, obviously, with vigilance on the part of the husband and the wife. These things can flow naturally from this incredible divine blueprint of marriage given to God. Just remember to absolutely do not believe the Beatles song, All You Need Is Love. You will notice that in, in this entire discussion, on making certain that there are no destructive elements of familiarity. Not once have I mentioned love. And I'm sure that some people listen to me lecturing on this topic and they say, well, it wouldn't happen to us. We love one another. Okay. Uh, that simply is irrelevant. Absolutely irrelevant. Because this hinges on facts, not feelings. And facts are the things that we have control over. Feelings, that's something else entirely. To place the fate of my family and the durability of my marriage on somebody's feelings, on the fact that I love her and she loves me, 
And what happens one day when we wake up and we don't feel that love? It can happen, you know. It does. And then what? So no, love has nothing to do with this conversation at all. Hope that you find it useful. Hope you're able to implement parts of it in positive and helpful ways. Thank you for being part of the show. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Go along and look at all our seven paperback books on special sale for listeners of this show right now. Hands off, this may be love. Little touch. I mean, a lot of that stuff touches on things we're speaking about here. I only want to get married once. The Thought Tools, Volume 1, 2, and 3. Dear Rabbi and Susan, a hundred great questions that we've been asked, and uh, so much more. So, uh, RabbiDanielAppen.com it is, and uh, you're there, I'm here, got to say goodbye to you. So until the time we're together next week, a week of good health and prosperity for you, and I have to say goodbye. I'm your Rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. <laughs>